Good morning. The uh, topic for this morning is simple. I want to ask the question, what promise does resurrection carry in a time marked by death? What promise does resurrection carry in a time, in a time marked by death? Um, in his book, God in Search of Man, um, Rabbi and philosopher, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel said this, only those who have gone through days on which words were of no avail on, on which the most brilliant theories jarred the ear like mere slang. Only those who have experienced ultimate not knowing, total muteness are able to enter the meaning of God. Um, he says there is a loneliness, loneliness in us that hears. When the soul separates from the company of ego and when we cease to exploit all things, but instead pray the world's cry, the world's sigh, our loneliness may hear the living grace beyond all power. We must first peer into the darkness, feel strangled and entombed in the hopelessness of living without God before we are ready to feel the presence of his living light. Um, this morning is an Easter Sunday, unlike any Easter Sunday that most of us have ever lived through. There is a darkness that entombs us and keeps us in our homes and a hopelessness that, that grows greater with every grim statistic that we see on the news. Um, yet even in this, is it possible? Is it possible that Rabbi Heschel is right, that this present darkness could make the radiance of Easter truth that much more clear, that much more bright than we have ever experienced before? And does this Easter resurrection that we've heard of for most of our lives, can it finally sink down deep in a way that we've never heard it? Um, in order to do that, I want to want to read um, uh, the passage. Well, that the Courtney already read, but um, I want to talk on the passage that was just read and answer the question: What relevant promise does the resurrection of Jesus carry in a time that's filled with death? Um, and I think there's at least three promises, for the sake of time. Um, three three promises in this passage. First. There's a promise of a weakened enemy. Two, there's a promise of a grand reversal. And three, there's a promise of healing water. Um, we'll start with the first, um, a weakened enemy. And we'll start here. So a few uh, months ago, my wife and I really enjoyed this show on Netflix called Cheer. It's about a cheerleading uh, squad and program in the middle of Corsicana, Texas, um, and this this junior college, this uh, coach built has, has built this incredible program um, where folks from across the country flock um, in order to to go to this junior college and win national championships in cheerleading. Um, and and there's this one scene, you know, most of the show is them practicing and telling the backstories, this incre the incredible backstories of people on the show and. Um, how they found hope and community and flourishing in this program. Um, but right about the big moment where they're competing for a national championship, one of the coaches gets them in a huddle, gets them pumped up, and he asks this question over and over and over again. He says, what is your why? What is your why? He says, remember your why. Remember your why. Because they're about to go out and, and, and do the thing that they've spent months trying to do. And he wants them to remember at the core of, of, of what you believe in, um, what is your why? Um, which is another way of saying, what is, what is the core of everything that you do? 
what drives it, was what infuses and informs your decision-making and gives you resolve in the middle of this present adversity, what do you go to? Um, the, the letter written to Corinth um, by the Apostle Paul was written to them um, in a time when they were, were big time struggling. Um, there were petty arguments. They couldn't get along. They had issues with, with trying to figure out what, which food to eat. They, um, they, they couldn't control their sexual urges. They were in this big city that was wealthy and, and they were tempted all the time. Um, and he answered their questions, but then ultimately lands um, in these two chapters going back to their why. He wants to remind them this is the core of what we believe. This is why um, we decide to do the things that I've asked you to do. This is why we live in the way that we live. This is why we're different. And this is why we give our lives for others. And so what is, what is the core of the Christian why? What is the core of Christian belief? And we've said this before in our church, but it's worth saying again, the core of Christian belief is resurrection. Um, if you read the book of Acts and you flip through and you kind of see the elevator pitch of every, every evangelist and apostle about what, um, what they were trying to convince the world of and is that, that this Jesus had come back to life that he was dead. They saw him. They saw him crucified. They saw him buried, but he came back to life. The elevator pitch and the core of everything that they believed was in resurrection. And what happened in resurrection is Paul says that that in resurrection, um, God, the God of the universe, attacked the two great enemies, death and sin. Death and sin. Um, why, why did God have to come back? Why did Jesus, why was he buried and why did he come back to life? It's because scriptures, it says here in accordance with the scriptures, scripture takes honestly, takes seriously two things. Um, takes, takes seriously the reality of sin, which is, which is, the re, which is man's rejection of God. Man's, man's desire to not listen to God. Man's desire to, humanity's desire not to live with God in view. Um, and it takes seriously the second thing, which is, which is the result of our sin, which is death, um, which is not only the result, it just so happens to be humanity's greatest, greatest fear. Um, it, it, um, it's humanity's, um, it, it's, it's, it's the thing that humanity is, is most afraid of, that struggles to be able to look in the face. And in order to really step into the, the, the Easter hope, we have to be able to look deeply into our great fear, which is death. And scripture that tells us about that, we read about, you know, describes humanity's situation and describes our fear. And where do I see that? Um, I see it in the book of Ecclesiastes. If, if you all remember before we, we changed up the topic and went full virtual, we were, you know, merrily moving through the book of Ecclesiastes in the usual Lent fashion. And the topic I was given that, um, that, that you know, I read deeply through, um, um, the topic I was given was death. Um, and it, it's scary to even be, honestly, to, to be given the topic of death. No one wants to be thinking about it full time and... 
um, be responsible for talking on it, but I, I read the book of Ecclesiastes with, with an eye on death and it was astounding to me because the book of Ecclesiastes and, and you know, in combination with, with this letter to the, the church in Corinth tells me three things about why we're scared of death that I saw. I saw these three things. Um, one, death nullifies has the, has the power to nullify our life's work. Two, death nullifies our life's loves. And three, death can nullify our life's purpose. And if we don't take death seriously, um, we do it for fear of, of knowing that these are the reasons we're scared it, because it nullifies our life's work, our life's loves, and our life's purpose. Um, where do I see that in Ecclesiastes? Um, the teacher in, in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18 and 19 said this, I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the, to the person who will come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. It's vain. Uh, he says, look, I, I've spent my life working and toiling and using every bit of knowledge that I've gained and, and wisdom that I've learned. And I've put it all into this great project and I've put my heart into it. And the thought that death could come and all of a sudden it's lost terrifies him. And he's like, look, if I, if I die and then who's going to come after me, can they, can they steward it? Like I can, I've, I've, I've built my life's work and I pass it on to somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. And what was all that time for? And it says that death can nullify our life's work too. Death can nullify our life's loves. Um, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15 and 16, he says, um, the teacher says this, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. He says, look, death not only takes away the harvest of that project, but it also separates us from the ones that we love. It says, look, he's, he's a father to a son. And when he dies, he, he, can, he cannot take anything other than what he came out of his mother's womb with. Um, it separates us from our work. It separates us from the, from, from the ones we love most. And what we find is by, take, by taking our life's loves, death gives us something to fear. It makes us afraid. Um, I, I have never been more afraid than when I started to have kids. My goodness, I was... Um, I was free, you know, but before that, it was the sense that I can do anything and something happens to me, I'm with Jesus, no big deal, but, that, but there's something about caring for little ones. And you're thinking about all the implications of what it means to be able to leave and lose them. Um, I am no longer as fearless as I used to be. Um... You know, I wanted to get a motorized, uh, you know, one of those motorized scooters. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not good with motor vehicles. I might, I might die. Um, by taking away our loves, death gives us something to fear. Um, three, not only does, does it take away our life's work or our life's loves, 
Death also can steal our life's purpose. Paul says this, if the dead are not raised at all, um, why are we in danger every hour? Why do we, why do I, why do I um, fight with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's just eat and drink because tomorrow we die. He's like, look, if, if, if there is no other purpose, if there is no resurrection, then there is no meaning. Um, forget your life's purpose. If you have no sense of what happens after death, then give it up. Just hang out. And by taking our life's purpose, death gives us anxiety about how to inform our, and infuse our life with meaning. And this is why the scripture takes seriously this idea that, that what humanity needed was of rescue. What humanity needed was someone who was to come to reverse the curse of sin. Um, it says in, in verse 3, For I delivered to you, this is their why, this is the, the, at the core of their belief, For I delivered to you what was of first importance of what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. What we have to remember is that Christ was not just Jesus's last name. You know, it's not Mr. Christ. And Christ was a name um, that, that carried significant weight through all of scripture. It meant Messiah or anointed one. It carried the, the idea of the one promised to rescue the world and its people. And what we find is that Jesus takes on this role and by attacking death, by sacrificing him, and he attacked death by sacrificing himself for our sins. You know, we are funny creatures. Our greatest fear is death. But at the same time, we not only fear death, but we also dismiss God. Um, we often care very little about him. And what we needed was a rescuer who not only attacked death, but also settled the fact that we are full of sin. And what Jesus did in a way that was counter to any sort of ideological frame that the, the pagans and the Jews at the time had was that he gave himself up on this cross. Um, he gave himself for our sin and for our wickedness. And this is what makes the Bible the most honest and profound book in all the world because it makes clear that there's a universal longing and awareness of our weakness and of our sin. And there's a universal longing to see someone deliver us. And we are good at looking for things to try to deliver us, whether it's career or whether it's romance. We are full of creative ways um, that we look for systems and people and activities to provide the rescue that we've been looking for. But scripture says the rescuer is not a what, but a who. This rescuer is Jesus and he is the Christ, the anointed and the chosen one. And the whole of scripture screams from front to end that he is the one that scriptures has been hinting about this whole time. And so I ask you this morning, what is your why? What is at the core of your, your fundamental way of looking at the world? What informs your decision-making? What gives life its value? What is your why? 
And because Jesus and, and, and all of what we learn about him is he is jealous for your why. He knows that if he is your why, that that is the basis of understanding, wisdom, and flourishing. But we are so good at substituting him for so many other things. But if it's true that he came back from the dead, then you cannot dismiss him. Then you have to deal honestly with the idea that maybe, just maybe, he is the one who came to rescue Maybe is, he is the one that you've been looking for. And what we see is that there's a weakened enemy, that death is not the enemy that it was because of what Jesus has done. But not only that, um, not only a weakened enemy too, there's a grand reversal. We have to ask the question, that's great that Jesus has done these things, that he is the rescuer, right? But what does this victory mean for us? And verse 20 says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want to lock in on this image of first fruits. Now, first fruits is an agricultural image. It's an agricultural culture. Um, and, um, and, and what we find is everybody would have understood what, what this idea of first fruit was, right? So first fruit um, was was the first of the harvest, right? When, when harvest was coming in, there was, there was this initial wave that was the first fruit. And, and the people of God were supposed to sacrifice this first fruit as a way to acknowledge to God that, that he owns all of the earth and that they were merely stewards of it. Not unlike our concept of tithing, right? So we say, God, we trust you with everything. And when God's people sacrifice this first fruit, what scripture said is that they would bless the, the rest of the harvest. This first fruit would be representative of everything else that was to come, right? If they gave their first fruit, then that meant that the people trusted God with everything that they owned. And, and Paul invokes this image because um, it, and he sets a contrast, right, about the example and, and the person of Jesus, and, and the work of Jesus and the work of Adam, he sets them in contrast because he says both are representative, but they're representative of opposite things. If Adam was representative, right, and if he introduced death into the world and chaos into the world by his initial rejection of God, what you find in Jesus is that in this, his submission and his surrender to God, um, that he made a way to become the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead. And because of what Jesus has done, there's now this grand reversal of the chaos, death, and decay um, that Adam initiated. And what, what we believe about this promise of first fruit is that because of this first fruit, we are included in this reversal. We're included in this reversal. And we have to see that this idea of the first fruit is our hope in a time of pandemic. Because of this grand reversal, because of what Jesus has initiated of, of being the first fruit of resurrection from the dead, we have to see that death's, that death's power cannot ultimately nullify our life's work, our life's love, or our life's purpose. And that's why the Apostle Paul at the end of his letter says, you know what? Um, be steadfast and immovable, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It says that death can no longer take those things because if you're in Christ, 
And if you're part of his grand reversal that he initiated, then all the things that you fear or give you anxiety about losing, all those things can, can no longer be taken if they're done unto God. And this is the hope that we have. And those who are in Christ ultimately have nothing to lose and nothing to fear and every reason to have confidence that what we, what we do for him and in him is not in vain. Even when things are grim, those who have died in Christ, um, they cannot ultimately be lost and the work that they've done and what they've committed their lives to cannot ultimately be in vain. And this is our hope that in Christ, his, this reversal, it counts for us. But not only is our hope in a, in a weakened enemy or in a grand reversal, but our hope um, and is, is also in the promise of, of healing water. Um, healing water. <clears throat> and in, in this idea of healing water, we ask the question, so how are we brought into this victory? How are we brought into this victory? Um, the Apostle Paul in verse 29 says, you know, if, if the dead are not raised, if Jesus had not done what he had done, then there is no reason for people to be baptized. There's no reason for people to get in the water. But because of, of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, then baptism and the waters of baptism have real power. And the waters of baptism are, is the way that we're brought into his promise is the way that we're brought into his work. And where do we see that? Romans 6, um, verses uh, 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And this is where I'll close. I'll, um, you know, close out the screen after this. But listen, um, the way that we're brought into the victory of Jesus is through the healing waters of baptism. By getting in the water, we say, I have surrendered wholly and completely to you, Lord Jesus. Um, the old me is now dead. I ask that you forgive my sin. I know that I have rejected you, but here I am now. Unite me and, and pull me into the work that you have committed on the world's behalf. I want a part of that. Um, I want this resurrection power in my life now. And I want to join in the resurrection of the dead when you return. Now, this is what we ultimately want for you. We want you to be connected and united to Jesus. We want you to experience the power and the hope of knowing that nothing in this life that you do unto him can ever be taken away from you, not even in death. We want you to know that your deepest joy and fulfillment can only be found in him. We want you to know that on this Easter, when things are looking grim, that he is faithful and present in the midst of the suffering of the world. And we see that in his death and resurrection. We want you to know that if you're in Christ, by the power of, of baptism, that you ultimately have nothing to lose, nothing to fear, and you can have every hope and confidence about the days to come. 
So if you have yet to be baptized, if you're watching this, you're attending Hope, you visit Hope, and you have yet to be baptized and made the commitment to say, Lord, I am all in, I am all yours, would you reach out to us? You could reach out to us at hello at hopejerseycity.org. We want to hear from you. Um, We know that this is unprecedented times, but we believe that his power goes out still. And we want you to experience that power. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this Easter and what it means. We ask that we would know Jesus to our core, that it would become our why and our great hope for now and for the days to come. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.